That was going to be falsetto like you wouldn't have believed. I was cocked in, but I've stood down. Not doing it. We did it already. The moment's passed. The moment has passed. Yeah. Okay, whenever you're ready. Is it recording? Yes. Are we live? I mean, no, we're not live. Live from Minnesota. (laughs) It's Monday night. (laughs) We're not live. Tell me why ain't nothing no, but no, we a can't. I don't. My heart's not in it. My heart's not in it. We also don't have the rights to sing that song. <clears throat> we Welcome don't have the money for that. To this episode. Do it again. <laughs> I'm not including any of this. Why not? Because I don't. That was good. It's not. That was gold. <clears throat> we don't have the rights to that song. We don't have the rights to that. We can't just break into song on this show. So actually, what are the rules there? Like if I just like started singing, what, what's the name of the song? I Want It That Way <laughs> by the Backstreet Boys. Which we were doing a really good duet of earlier. Um, as an entry to this song, as an entry uh-huh. to this episode, that's illegal if I just start singing. So It's not fair use for me to grace this podcast. Whenever with... you perform a song in public, mm-hmm. you need to pay for the rights for it. I'm not sure if Backstreet Boys people are going to get really mad at us if we like poorly sing I Want It That Way in falsetto. Okay, two things here. I take issue with poorly. Oh, no, that was referring and to me. second of <laughs> all, um, how could it be anything other than helping Delightful. them? Yeah, like this is helping their brand. I mean, the Backstreet Boys are a little, they fell off. Shut um, your mouth. <laughs> I don't like being silenced. About my views on the Backstreet Boys. I get a lot of hate online about that whenever I post about it. People think that, like, I'm a big in sync guy. And it's, I don't know. I went to both their concerts. You did? And Backstreet wow. Boys put on a far better show because they were hungry oh. for it. <laughs> they were hungry for it. They God wanted the it. applause. <laughs> they were hungry for it. The Backstreet Boys <laughs> wanted it more, they played hard. <laughs> They left it all out on the field, folks. Um, anyway, we'll be doing rights infringements on the Backstreet Boys later this episode, so stay tuned. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name, Eric Kane. With me, as always, Laura Zatz. Uh, say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. Um, well, what, are, what do you think we're going to talk about today, folks? We're going to talk about American Dirt. We're going to talk about the thing everyone else is talking about. This would be the time um, where I would hit the gong, but I dropped it. Yeah, you you really just knocked it off the table, and frankly, you haven't picked it up. Um, no, so. I haven't, because I was too busy singing I Want It That Way. I was about to break into what, frankly, would have been the sort of falsetto that would have lost us half our Patreon subscribers. Uh, so I was not, I'm not going to do that. We can save that till the end of the episode, maybe. Um, but yeah, so we're going to do some American Dirt talk, because it's on everybody's minds, and I think there's a lot to unpack with how this whole mess unfolded, all that sort of stuff. Um, but before we get to any of that, how about the basic rundown? 
Yes. So we are towards the end of January. Mm-hmm. We've already got our query show up. Her- Eric woo! mentioned. Woo! We Eric are mentioned. On it this year. We sure are. <laughs> Eric mentioned Patreon already. Um, so that query show is up there. Our first pages show. We were re- recording right after this, so there still might be some Backstreet Boys action. You should subscribe to Patreon at an eight dollar a month level to hear it. Mm-hmm. I'm actually not sure if it's going to be there. We haven't recorded it yet, but who knows? The night is getting oh, well, it'll be the there. night is getting long, and we can only get looser. Let's yeah. just put it that way. Yeah. Um, two other things really, really exciting to announce. Um, this last week we launched two new things. Mm-hmm. The first is a forum. So we I appreciate wanted... you remembering the things that we do, so that you because <laughs> I would have totally forgotten to mention this. That's so. why you say hello, <laughs> uh-huh. and that's why I say the things. Yeah. Perfect. Um, so we we launched a forum. the The reason for this is because we get we've we've been doing this podcast for about three years now. We get people writing to us, asking us questions about how to find writing community, how to workshop, how to find critique partners, etc. And so we've realized that over the past three years, we've built a really, really wonderful community of people who engage with Eric and with me. Mm-hmm. What we haven't yet done is created a community where the people who are fans of Print Run can talk to one another. So we created something very like the very basicest of forums. So Google Groups, we wanted everybody to be mm-hmm. able to access yeah. it without fancy like logins or whatever, um, where it's basically a jumping off point. It's an opportunity to ask Eric or me questions about writing or publishing, but it's also a really good opportunity to rely on your fellow writer to help you critique things or to give you a to give you kind of a, a view of something you might not be seeing because you're a little bit too close to it. It's also an opportunity to meet somebody who's writing something similar to what you're writing and to kind of take it offline and and find critique partners or writing groups. That's what I think is like the big value of it so far, just like popping in and out. It's like a Tinder for writing groups. (laughs) It's just like, you know, I think you put it really well there, which is that like you and I have kind of developed ties to the people who listen to this show, you know, through things like Taluna May Concern, through Ask Print Run, all these different things where people are asking us questions. And it just, I mean, it just kind of hit us that you guys probably are thinking about and working through some of the same issues. So it's like connect. Obviously, we're still around. We're going to do all those things as much as we ever have. But like probably there's resource sharing that can happen within the community that doesn't necessarily even involve us. You know what I mean? So it's like just building out that sort of community and I'm hoping there's so much knowledge yeah, amongst all yeah, of exactly. you where we're there but you know again there's we're not the end all be all we're just two people and so the idea is if you have this great community yeah you can also help each other I also know that like for example the like a bunch of kidlit writers who are on the forum mm-hmm. um, have already created a slack group for accountability there you in their go. writing perfect Stuff, like Take, I mean, honest to God, like use the forum to meet people to then leave the forum. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, you seriously, like it's free to join. Like, go in there and meet someone who can help you or meet someone who you can help. I don't know. Like, maybe you're someone who's trying to give back a little bit. Like, the idea is to like create an intentional space away from social media where there's just focused room to talk about the things you're trying to talk about yeah. as writers, you know? And so, open access. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So just send us a note. Like, we want you involved. Yeah. So, so um, related to Pat paying it forward, mm-hmm. 
Um, we've realized also that a lot of our special content, a lot of our paid content, um, a lot of the added value is specifically for writers. Um, however, it's not only writers that listen to this show. So if you are a writer who is not necessarily in need of special Patreon episodes or a forum, or you are an industry professional who wants to just say thanks for the work that we're doing um, and cover our costs a little bit in the time it takes to kind of make this thing happen and hopefully to grow it in this coming year, we have, in addition to our Patreon, um, launched a Ko-Fi account. Mm -hmm. So that is... A silly way to spell coffee, um, but the, essentially what it is—it does make me angry. Every it does. Time I think about it. I yeah. know it's like it doesn't bother me as much in writing, but then when I I realize we have a podcast and we have to say it, um, so Ko-Fi, it's a it's a website where basically you can buy somebody theoretically like a coffee as a thanks. It's like three bucks. You can do as many like you know as much as many coffees as you want at any given time. Um, and it's kind of a one-off donation just to say thanks. So our website for that, if you want to just throw us, you know, Eric needs to stay up on the sweet, sweet super mom's coffee. Um, honestly, with a three buck donation, he can get two of those. That's right. So that's 48 ounces, folks. That'll keep <laughs> me going for at least 30 minutes. I know. Right. So if you if you um, feel so inclined, that address is ko ficom slash print run. So thank you so much in advance. We so, so appreciate it. And we're just really, really excited that 2020 is going to bring a lot of extra um, investment in this podcast and in this thing that we're all creating together. And I hope that you're as excited to see it as we are to do it. So without further ado, let's get into the nonsense. Yeah. So I guess we should just kind of start from the beginning. I'll give a basic. I think that you have something that kind of leads us off with this, but mm -hmm. I will like, so American Dirt <clears throat> is a book is, <laughs> and a book is uh, <laughs> no. So American Dirt is a novel written by Janine Cummins um, and it's about. You know, it's about the border. I mean, it's a border novel. The, um, it's you've probably. I mean, there's, there's. I would say that there's virtually no way you're listening to this podcast and you haven't heard of this book by now. Like, it's Oprah's book club pick this year. It was a book that got a seven figure advance. It's this book about the refugee crisis. It's a book about um, a woman and her taking yes. her eight year old son um, across the border from Mexico into the United States. And so, like the big. Um, I guess like the big thing here, the big kerfuffle we're having now is that we're nearing the books. Have we passed the pub date? Yeah, yeah. it was like last week. Sure. So we're now into the, which means that like coverage is starting to happen. We've seen release parties starting to happen. Um, all of these things have gone really uh, sideways, which is why we're talking about it now. But like essentially this is a book that um, is about a very specific marginalized population. Um, the... You know, I mean, Mexican immigrants, right? Like South or Hispanic immigrants moving, you know, up through the border, like trying to, and it's very timely. Yeah, oh, it's very timely, um, which is why you might want someone who is from those communities to write a book about it, which is not what we have here. We have Janine Cummings, um, who is Puerto Rican, um, as recently as 2016, according to the New Republic, has identified as white. Um, so we got into some issues fast. And I like, I'm trying to think about where the best place to start with this um like because there's so many things to unpack here both with why this book on a content level is dangerous not actually well so 
I don't want to say dangerous. I want to say harmful, um, which is different than dangerous because dangerous makes it sound like I'm scared of it, which I'm not. I think it's just a misguided book by an author who shouldn't have written it. But, um, you know, do we want to start? I mean, I guess, like, what, what do you think, like, our best entry point is here? Because, like, there's a million different things we have because we've got – there's a few different places. We've got the review coverage, which has been very strange, I think, especially from the New York Times. We've got the statement from the publisher in the face of the backlash. We've got um, the campaign up front, the fact that they paid this much money for a book like this that really, I think, as we'll kind of discuss, can be seen as appropriative. Like, maybe I, you know where I'd like to start, actually, Laura? What? Is with – Weeks beforehand. So I've been mad at yeah, this book. Exactly. I've this been, is where I want to start because I yeah. think this is an interesting, interesting <laughs> entry point into this whole so, discussion. So I have been low-key mad at this book for literal months. Sure. And the reason for that is because a good friend of the podcast, um, Matt Kelleher, who will actually be a guest on Print Run next month. Woo! Um, so he is a bookseller at my favorite local Twin Cities bookstore. Um, and he was talking like... Matt is not afraid to call out for specifically Macmillan on their bullshit um, Mm -hmm. with, if you remember, Macmillan is responsible for that ridiculous um, library embargo where they're not letting libraries get copies of an ebook for six months after the book, after, after a book comes out. And so one thing that he's been doing that's really, really wonderful in his store is kind of pulling back the number of Macmillan titles that are in. Okay. So, American Dirt is published by Flatiron, which is an imprint yeah. of Macmillan. Yeah. Okay. It's it's a relatively new imprint. They've published a lot of really fabulous books, actually. They've attracted a lot of top talent. Flatiron's this a good is, place. No, I mean, this like, is very they publish clearly, good books. There's yeah, no this question. is very clearly yeah. a imprint that has, like, is getting the money. Resources from and talent. No resources question. and talent out of all of yeah. Macmillan and is... And is Taking, you know, taking is the wrong word, but is attracting that talent yeah. from Penguin Random House, from Simon & Schuster, etc. Okay, <clears throat> so several months ago, Matt was talking about how there is this one book that one of the big five decided was going to be their title of the year. And mm. there's always one of those, you know, there's always the book that has the big, like, 20-foot poster yeah. At BEA, there's always the book that is just everywhere and people just are shoving down your throats and they want you to read it so bad. Um, And he works at a very, like a relatively small bookstore and was talking about how he had received twice as many copies of, of a galley for this book than there are people who work at the store. And so for me, who is constantly advocating for authors, right, and is constantly hearing from editors and from publishers, we don't have enough money for this. We can't pay you that much. There isn't any money for marketing. To see a publisher just, like, bombard a small bookstore, a small indie bookstore, with just a ridiculous number of galley copies made me super angry. Because mm-hmm. um, what that looks like to me, not to mention, and I didn't even know that this was a seven-figure book deal at this point. I just thought it was just like somebody printed too many arcs and just didn't care about them and was just like blowing budgets for other tiny books that now would get no attention, no money, no anything. Yeah. Um. So already there's this idea of overspending around this book that as a prof- as a publishing professional kind of made my – the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Um, 
so affordability <laughs> is is one of the things that I was first drawn to. That was the very first thing I heard about this book. Yeah. Was this book is making everything else not affordable. So I want you to unpack that in a minute because it sounds so just so I understand what you're saying that a publishing a publisher imprint, you know, or whoever yep. it is, a group, their budget is finite. Mm-hmm. Right. You get a certain amount of money and you got to decide how to spend it. And what it sounds like you're saying and I, what I th- and kind of reading is having happened here, too, is that they decided this is the book. This is where we're going to spend our money. Yep. This is this is the one. And, you know, like to take a further step back here, one thing you and I talk a lot about is, um, you know, advances are shrinking or or rather they're stratifying. Mm. Right. Like most debut fiction, most. You know, novelists who you haven't heard of are getting advances ten thousand dollars or less. Yeah, I was gonna say like somewhere in that like seven seventy five hundred to ten yeah. range, right? Like, and here, here we've got a novel that got seven figures. I mean, that is a the multiplier on that is insane. And so, what that does mean though is that you're spending money here and not elsewhere, mm-hmm. right? Like, doing something like selling out. For American Dirt, saying as a publisher, saying, "Hey, this is our book this year. This is the one we are going to sell everywhere. This is the one that they. This is the award winner. This is the one that is the best seller. This is the one that's going to be on Oprah. Is probably the most condensed way we can put the commercial yeah. appeal of this. Like, um, this is the one. And so you put all that money there, and it does. There is some. There is like, you know, that does mean you can't put money elsewhere, and so." It's this instead of lots of other things. And so then it becomes time to say, well, what's this? And what does that say about publisher priorities, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because, I mean, you'll see it all over the internet. Like, one thing that publishing has a serious problem with is supporting writers of the exact background that Janine Cummins has been given, like, license to write about freely. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's just one of those things where... Rather than letting, you know, and there are a lot of people, you know, from this community who have written, you know, on this stuff. I think specifically of like Valeria Lucelli, who wrote a border novel last year, uh, Lost Children Archive. I thought it was going to win the Man Booker. It's a fabulous book. You should all go read it instead of this one. But like, the point is, there are writers to be supporting from these from a from the community that is far closer from the perspective of these specific people. Um, and so let's get into a second, Laura, and I want you to you answer this question for me. Why is it a problem? Just And just in case someone's listening to us for the first time, because this is something we talk about a lot. Mm-hmm. Why is it a problem that Janine Cummings wrote this book? Like why? Like, because fundamentally, I think something I've seen a lot about is like, this is a terrible fit of <laughs> author and subject, right? Yes. Like we've got this person writing about this thing. Why is that getting people's hackles up so bad? So there's a lot of angles to this. Um, And if you condense it and really, really simplify it, it's the answer is because she is not own voices. If you're not familiar with that term is, it's a shorthand term meant to describe um, a book that is about a group of people or a person with a particular marginalization. And an own voices book is if an author shares that marginalization. The idea of that is that we're not just making money off of stories about people. 
um, of different backgrounds, but we're also uplifting writers of those same backgrounds. So when you say make, so I want to stop for a second. When you say making money off of, you're referring to say someone who isn't of that community saying, hey, who there's some trauma, yeah. there's some interesting, there's an interesting story that probably mm-hmm. people would want to read. I'll write it. Yeah. And so, so you, it's, you're talking about appropriation, essentially. Yeah, right? and, like it, and it's not necessarily only appropriation right. because I think I think the problem isn't necessarily that this white lady wrote this one book, but the problem is is that because racism is so deeply ingrained and institutionalized in our country, is that whenever somebody writes a story that is, you know, kind of that is exploiting black pain or um, Latinx pain or whatever. And a white person is telling that story. It is fundamentally like decentering the people who the story is about. And so there's there there is a little bit of of um, theater to that in a way that feels really disingenuous. And there's also there's this idea that um, if you're making money off of these stories, but you're not letting the people who lived them have their voices told and mm-hmm. what you're doing instead is you're giving a million dollars to somebody who in her book that has been copy edited. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the Mexican characters calls her mother abuela, <laughs> which is grandmother instead of so, mother. So actually, like, <laughs> I want to, I want to talk about that for a second. Yes. Because that, that sort of error in mm-hmm. this book. And like, I think one thing that really got people going about this is there just seems to be so many, like, it's very obvious that this person is not of this community. You know what right. I mean? And, like, and not only that, but, like, as you're saying, like, this book has been copy edited. <clears throat> this book has been proofread. This book has been edited. on a Like, it's it just sort of speaks to the larger problem <laughs> here of, mm-hmm. like, the demographics of publishing, right? Like, this, all this different stuff. And it's, like, yeah. this propensity to just take stories from different communities that really no one's done their I mean I was I'm gonna I wanna say like have done their due diligence on, but the truth is that they're not of. Like it's even more fundamental than that. You know what I mean? Like and I just I just think like you know, especially even like going back to your initial image here of like the fact that this bookstore was getting more galleys of this book. Like any author, any debut author will tell you would tell you in excited terms if their galleys were being sent everywhere. Right. Mm -hmm. Like they want that. They want that badly. Like they want their stuff to be like if you're an author and you're like, hey, what's my galley print run? You want that number to be as high as possible because it means they're going to send your book out everywhere. And what it seems like has happened with this one is like it was so oversaturated. They pour so many resources in this that like it was even more than was useful. (laughs) And for what? For this. And at what expense? Books by anyone else you know what i mean like it's isn't aren't getting the money it's like this is it's such a clear declaration of values you know what Mm -hmm. i mean and i just like i want to actually like so all of this all of this happened all of this like um you know this i feel like there's there's a certain subset of listeners that we have or are out there even if they don't they at this point they probably don't listen to this show we've probably made them <laughs> we've probably made them mad enough that they've turned us off but 
Um, I do think that um, it's worth kind of bringing up, like, why, like, this appropriative stuff. Like, why is it such a big deal that um, someone would write a story from this, like, taken from this community? And it's the only one that's being valued. And if you look at that, somebody can really easily refute that and say, well, yeah. but Flatiron also published these books. Sure. But, but the this point book is, sucks. is like, it's, this it's, one is the that's, book. That's, that, yeah, exactly. It's the like, book. First of all, we're allowed to go book by book. And second of all, yes, this is the one that has come, as we've described, at the expense of other books. And like, you know, like, okay, so the question is, why is this sort of appropriation dangerous? What does it say? Why do people hate it so much? And I think you have to look no further than what happened at the book launch party of this thing. Because, yeah. like, you had – so this book, again, big ticket item, A-list, all this kind of stuff. It comes out. There's a launch party. And and this actually <laughs> – I haven't been – believe it or not, I haven't actually been, like, mad on the internet in a very long time. I don't know if I believe that. No, 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 no. But, like, in truly, like, in terms of, like, vi- like we get reflexively max. It's entertaining and we're all trying to, you know – engage ourselves mm-hmm. in our otherwise numb lives. But, um, you know, like really like visceral feeling. So they had this book launch at this swanky place for this book. And the table decorations, Laura. Were walls were with barbed wire on them. Featured barbed wire decorations. Now, you maybe you've heard that and maybe you're as revolted as you should be. And maybe you're understanding what we're talking about. But essentially, like, this is a book about um, crossing the southern border of the United States. Um, currently, right now, unless you're living under a rock, you are aware that there are migrants in detention camps. Um, that there infants. are That there are people being put in what are effectively concentration camps at the border. And that has been turned into, for the purpose of this book launch of a book written by a white woman, um, it's been turned into a table decoration as an image. And a manicure. Actually, for oh, her, for her, her nails, launch yeah. week. Yeah, she did put barbed wire on her nails to launch. Yeah. Yeah, because it's on the cover of the book. I don't I don't have things I can say on a podcast for what, for what I think about that. Um, but suffice it to say that I find it in bad taste, so to speak. Um, I think that it displays a – so I actually want to unpack something here. Mm-hmm. And you stay with me for a second. That – there is a certain type of white person and a certain type of white person, especially that I think is interested in the arts and in publishing, that likes to feel progressive and good about themselves yes. because they like to feel aware, right? Yeah. They like to well, they're, know. They're publishing books about minorities. Right, exactly. Like they're they, bringing attention, Eric. They like to focus on you know, problems in the world and they like to write about them in sensational ways. And they like to, more importantly than any of those things, they like to profit off those things, mm-hmm. which this person has decidedly done um, very much so. And and I think that there are a lot of readers who kind of fit that bill as well. And so you can kind of see, like, if barbed wire around a border or a detention camp, as that image evokes, that's what the bar, like, that's why that image is there. Like, that's what it is meant to evoke. If that's something that is is to you in your head something equivalent as a table decoration, then all of this is imagery to you. All of this is something you're seeing in a movie or something you're reading in a book. It's something that is no more real to you than anything you would read in a fantasy novel. It's something that 
is basically like provocative entertainment for you because you are comfortable. You're someone far enough away from it that doesn't feel real. You're someone far away from far enough away from it that the stakes of it simply don't so connect. I and I just on, yeah. I want to hit uncomfortable here for a sure, second. Sure. So one of the things as I've been thinking as I've been kind of living through this controversy is the concept of palatability and comfort. And so I think the the question that comes down to, you know, why is this book the book? Yeah. And the short answer is racism. But the longer answer is, is that publishing predominantly is filled with white people. Yep. Predominantly is filled with white people who are working for an organization that is not actually like a machine that is not actually that left. Yeah. But a lot of the people working in it believe themselves love to the, be. That's a perfect and, way to put it. They love to think themselves that yes. way, but they are not. Yeah. And so yeah. then the idea is, is you want to bring attention to these horrible things that are happening. Yeah. But they need to be palatable. And yes. so to be palatable, yes. you can't make somebody looking through a white gaze. You can't make them too uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So the idea is is even if this is a novel centering a person of color or an immigrant experience mm-hmm. or something, um, that work still needs to have a white person be the hero. That, per- that book still needs to except that minority suffering is is really only interesting or acceptable if told through a white gaze. It's over there, too. It's over it's there. Some, it's compartmentalized. And so why – I want to – let me read you a quote real quick from Parle Segal's review of this book in the New York Times. Which um, was one of three things that the New York Times did for <laughs> The New York Times week. did a lot of this book. Oh, man. But this is the review – so there is a bad review of this book that we're going to talk about in a little bit. But this review is actually really good um, in general. When we say good and bad reviews, we just mean a review that was done poorly and a review that was done well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the I'm good, not talking the, about the verdict yes. of the book. I'm talking about the level of critique in right. the review itself. The review um, that was done well is actually a scathing review. Yeah, no, the, yeah. This is So this is a good review of the book that also tears the book to shreds. Um, and this is by Parl Segal, who for my money, is can't miss. You should read her every time she writes. Um, But this is how it ends. But does the book's shallowness paradoxically explain the excitement surrounding it? The tortured sentences aside, American Dirt is enviably easy to read. It is determinedly apolitical. The deep roots of these forced migrations are never interrogated. The American reader can read without fear or uncomfortable self-reproach. It asks only for us to accept that, quote, these people are people, while giving us the saintly to root for and the barbarous to, re- to deplore, and then congratulating us for caring. And I hear that, and that, I've been thinking about that kicker since I read it when it first came out, because it suggests something that I think is so searing and true about, like, just white book consumption and production and publishing and writing and all this different stuff which is that the idea, like the line here about congratulating us for caring and like how there's such an intentional project of taking other people's trauma, packaging in a, packaging it in a way that asks nothing of anyone reading it, right? Like the idea here is not to say, hey, you should do something. Hey, maybe your livelihood or your safety or your comfort is coming at the expense of the people in this material, but rather just to say, as long as you care, as long as you feel a little bit bad, you've done enough, right? 
like congratulating you for caring, I would say is like the central like ethos is like the central ethos of like white liberalism. You know what I mean? Like it's just like as long as you're like empathetic enough, as long as you feel sorry enough for these people suffering, you can continue on with your life and feel like a good person. And this feels like a book that is just born so much of that ethos. And it's just incredibly it's incredibly frustrating. And I think that as a publisher, we have to do better. And it actually like maybe this is there's someone listening to this, surely, who is hearing me say these things and think, well, Eric's being dramatic. Eric's being over the top. He's being all these different cranky things. Eric he, is often dramatic, because, but he's not actually being dramatic here. Because he's a little <laughs> bit, you know, because he's further left than the average, you know, reader or whatever. But like, um, I want to get to. So all this backlash happened, right? Like people started talking about it. People started talking about the barbed fucking wire table decorations at this party for this book. They talked about, you know, everything that kind of happened with this. They talk about um, the afterword of this book, which we're going to get to in a minute. But Flatiron Books, the publisher of this book, released a statement today. Or not today, but on the day that all this was happening. Um, and I want to read it in full. And then I want to pick at it a little bit. Um, so here we go. <clears throat> Flatiron Books is proud to be the publisher of Janine Cummins' American Dirt, a novel of enormous power that has already affected the way many readers see the world. We are carefully listening to the conversation happening around the novel. The concerns that have been raised, including the question of who gets to tell which stories, are valid ones in relation to literature, and we welcome the conversation. And this is the part that I would like everyone to pay very close attention to. When discussing American Dirt, we ultimately go back to the novel's intention and the way it affects us as readers. American Dirt asks the question, how far will a mother go to protect her son? And in the course of answering that question, gives us empathy with our fellow human beings who are struggling to find safety in our unsafe world. This is the lens through which we have viewed American Dirt as the publisher and the way in which we hope it can be appreciated by readers. It's tough to even know where to start with that. And the place I think that I would like to start is in the bit here about intention, right? Where it says, when discussing American Dirt, we ultimately go back to the novel's intention as though we should judge all art based on whether or not it meant well. <laughs> that is like, such like a high school thing it's to say. Like it's, I, it's, I don't want to like say a bunch of flamboyant things, but it's a really, really juvenile way of evaluating art. So so I, I wanna and, I wanna talk yeah, about this yeah, for a little bit. Yeah, okay. Me too. So intention, right? Intention on behalf of the author is something that critics and you know different types of apologists love to bandy around. Well, I didn't mean to do that. It's not my fault. Um, in addition to removing blame because it's because the idea is that you have that like that's kind of like the the publishing mens rea, right? Yeah. Is yeah. I intended to do harm, um, but the but but books like once they're published, like your chance to do that work is gone. Like yeah. no matter what you intended, if you as a writer or you as a editor left whatever that intention was in a way that wasn't coming through, you mm -hmm. failed. Yeah, that's your fault. Yep. And this idea of intention, I think, is also absolutely batshit ludicrous because what Flatiron notice that nothing Flatiron said in that statement was mentioning 
you know, the politics of how timely this book is. They were not mentoring, men- mentioning the border crisis. They weren't mentioning immigration. But we know that to be deeply, deeply valued by them as selling points because oh, yeah. that's what was used across the entire marketing scheme of many, many millions of dollars that they spent on this. They sold it on those terms, and now that we are evaluating it on those terms, it's only about they a mother. It. Yeah, it's only about a mother and her boy, and how Nothing far that they'll go here, for safety. No class analysis, no race analysis. That's just timeless things like mothers and kids, right? That's it. Like, which is such an abdication, I think of what this book is and what they know that this book is. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, I don't know. It's really frustrating. And actually, uh, Seagal had something to say here about intention, too. Um, So just like a quick line here from her review, which says, um, she says, allow me to take this one for the team. She leads her review. The motive of the book may be unimpeachable. I'm going to actually even debate that point. Um, (laughs) But novels must be judged on execution, not intention. This peculiar book flounders and fails. Um, which it sounds kind of provocative, but is actually very basic, which is that it matters how well you wrote the damn book. You know what I mean? <laughs> like we can judge a book by what it is. Like we don't just because you meant well. And again, like I think like my big quibble here is that I don't know that I don't know that there was a meaning well here. Like I sort of look at this and I see someone like, who kind of felt fine, or maybe this, you know, we were tweeting about this the other day, or I was from the Loon account. Sometimes it's just me going off on a loose cannon uh, threat. But when someone says, I meant something, or they have intentions, it's fair to judge intentions by how they acted, right? Yeah, like if maybe you, they didn't. If I, say, if I say, I plan to go to the moon, and then I do nothing to further that goal, it's fair to wonder, did I actually mean to go to the moon? Here, like, you mean to tell the story from a community you are not a part of in a very sensitive manner about a community, you know, undergoing a very serious amount of trauma right now. And we don't see any of that real legwork, you know? We don't see the, like, that That inherent, if you mean that, if you are someone who is saying, hey, I'm trying to do this, that involves a certain amount of work and steps that I just don't see as evident. Particularly here. when it comes like, to like racial elements in yeah. books. That's a constant, constant work. And so I luckily for us, less so luckily for Flatiron and Cummings herself, she is in the middle of a 40 stop book tour yeah. and has been paraded at the Midwinter Institute and a bunch of other places, and has been basically speaking to packed rooms of publishing professionals wanting to hear about all of this nonsense. Yeah. And this is coming off of, and, and it's worth mentioning before we dive into this, that um, a lot of the things that happen in this book bear a really striking resemblance to a lot of memoirs yeah. that um, Mexican writers yeah. have have had in their books about them crossing the borders. A whole lot of taking. A lot of taking here. from there. Um, um, but so there. Um, so in a lot of these statements, right? Um, there have been reports at various events about how she said, you know, I wrote this book, but I didn't publish this book. There's a lot of stuff I didn't have control over. You know, I'm the writer, not the publisher. So it seems like she's trying to foist stuff off on Flatiron. Everybody is foisting. Right. Meanwhile, she's also been, you know, has said in some statements 
um, why, like, why would, why should I be expected? Like, why is it bad that I accepted a seven figure deal when it was offered to me? I spent seven years writing this book for free. Mm-hmm. And so I, I want to spend some time here because yeah. Print Run is an official, hey, writer, you should take the money when it's available take podcast. The, take the money might be the theme of this, might be the slogan of this show. I yeah. think I think it is. <laughs> However, um, yeah. I would like to to go deeper into when sure. take the money writer is incomplete advice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. So first of all, I want to kind of draw attention to this idea that like it was somehow moral for Janine Cummings to take this money because it was offered to her after she spent seven years um, working really hard on this book. And I would like to mention that she thought it was perfectly fine to spend seven years working on this book for free. So um Clearly, she thought it was fine and worthwhile before that, regardless of how much she's trying to say, well, it's not my fault that they bought the super racist book that I wrote. Um, but more than that, I I think that there is there's when you take the money. There's this idea that like so the writer is disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. OK, OK. Just we've talked about it a million ways on this podcast about how this industry is set up, even though it cannot function without writers, Mm -hmm. this industry is set up to devalue the work that you are doing. Yeah. And that's just the way that it is. Okay. And we're, you know. You're a tangential contractor. Yes. And so there is this idea that you have to shut up and take it and that you have no say. Mm -hmm. And... Think about which is part of where take the money comes from, right? Because opportunities are few and far between. You should take what you can get, right? So, I want to talk about why she probably shouldn't have taken this, yeah. and I think that starts with she shouldn't have written the fucking book. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so I think um, the idea is when people write books, right? They want to make an impact on the world, and a lot of people, I think. You know, regardless of where you're coming from, you think that you're going to be making like a positive impact. And hopefully you've interrogated what that means, um, that you've interrogated what it means to be writing a positive, uh, you know, an impact. And even though this book is racist as fuck and doesn't quite meet the legal definition of plagiarism, but is still really, really like plagiarist. Um, the idea that I gamed a system that was racist and I stole from people who actually had these experiences and I'm laughing all the way to the bank and I'm now a millionaire. Yeah. Pretty sure that doesn't fall under doing good things in the world. Well, it's just it's a question of at whose expense. Right. You know what I mean? Like, you know, we say take the money like there's a corollary there to at whose expense, you know, and it feels like here <clears throat> that answer is pretty straightforward. It's like this group of people. You know, we tell you to take the money because if you don't, someone else will. Yeah. And here someone else has. (laughs) And it's just it's just tricky. And like that question of who and what, like I think a lot about um, like I actually I want to turn now toward the initial hype cycle of this book, Mm -hmm. because it does, I think, illuminate kind of how. You know, publishing media works, how this stuff kind of kicks into gear even before anyone has read anything. And one thing we've seen, 
actually is a lot of blurbers for this book. You saw this, right? Like have said, I didn't actually read the book when I blurbed it. I'm so sorry. Which is standard. That is standard practice. That unfortunately is standard practice because, and I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this, but so much of this stuff is just favors for friends. But like. Or people you're fucking, quite honestly. (laughs) Jesus Christ, Lord. (laughs) It's true. Uh, We talk about this a lot, not on the podcast, you guys. It's like uh, you can tell who's sleeping together. Anyway, Um, not the point. We're going to edit all of that out. Um. So, but you've seen blurbers kind of backtrack off and be like, oh, I didn't actually even read the book before I endorsed it. I was Selma just told Hayek to had to apologize. Yeah, exactly. Like people who haven't read it were like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that's what was in it. I wouldn't have said these nice things about the contents of the book if I had known what was there, which is absurd. But it's also, so a weird thing happened in the cycle of this book, which is that Parul Segal was not the only one who reviewed this book in the New York Times. Um, you also had Lauren Groff. Um, who I typically am pro Lauren Groff. Oh, Lauren Groff is the author of Fates and Furies. Which she's is an incredible the, book. She's the author of Florida, which was one of my favorite books of two years ago. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, Lauren Groff is a very good writer. She's someone, uh, in general, again, yeah, like when she her, when Lauren Groff's next book publishes, I will buy it and read it. But, man, like we had kind of a situation here where she read she reviewed this book and she sort of reviews it as this very page-turner thriller, right? Like, in general, like, her review is positive here. And more importantly, even than that, the Times, um, the you know, the Times took pull quotes from it to kind of paint the book as positive, right? And, like, here, though, there's one, there's one section in here where it just kind of became clear that the point of Lauren Groff reviewing this book was not actually to provide like a critical analysis of the text but rather to sort of signal something right and so i want to point to this quotation from her review where she says this but another different fear and the first fear is like plot fear like she's scared for the characters you know like it's she's having a good time reading this it's very kind of scary and engaging but another different fear had also crept in as i was reading i was sure i was the wrong person to review this book I could never speak to the accuracy of the book's representation in Mexican cultures or the plights of migrants. I have never been Mexican or a migrant. In contemporary literary circles, there is a serious and legitimate sensitivity to people writing about heritages that are not their own because, at its worst, this practice perpetuates the evils of colonization, stealing the stories of oppressed people for the profit of the dominant. I was further sunk into anxiety when I discovered that, although so discovered is theoretically something that happened after she started reading this for the review. I discovered that although Cummins does have a personal stake in stories of migration, she herself is neither Mexican nor a migrant. So the awareness starts to creep in here that, like, why is Lauren Groff reviewing this book by this person who shouldn't have written in the book in the first place? And she's not the person who should be reviewing it. And I actually, so there was a piece this week that I actually want to point to that I loved because it really kind of highlighted how how the sausage gets made, right? And it was by um, someone who this show is a big fan of, Alex Shepard of The New Republic. Um, he wrote a piece about this whole mess. And one thing um, that he basically kind of posits here is that he's like the book guy for The New Republic. He does a lot of publishing coverage, that sort of thing. Um, but one thing that he kind of highlights in this piece of his, which we'll link to and you should absolutely read, I think I already tweeted about it once, is that 
so much of times like major newspaper book review coverage is not actually about evaluating the books but rather signaling to readers right that this is a big book that this is the book you should that if you're someone who's buying books here's your pointer based on who the reviewer is that this is the one you should be looking for right and so i want to read this paragraph from his piece in the new republic clearly this was not what groff or the times book review signed up for she was not assigned American dirt to wrestle with questions of whether white people can write about brown people. She was brought in because she is the author of Fates and Furies, a mega bestseller that was Barack Obama's favorite novel of 2015. Groff's byline was meant to signal to readers that American Dirt is also a big novel. The review was just doing its part in the hype cycle. And actually, there's another line here in the next sentence that I, or in the next paragraph that I really love too. This is a long-standing problem for the review, which is more an industry tip sheet <laughs> than a venue for serious criticism. Um, man, um, burn, burn. Which is, <laughs> but like, so the point here is that you have this book by Janine Cummings that many of the blurbers didn't even read before endorsing. That you hire a reviewer, not you hire one reviewer to actually critique it. You have Pearl Segal, whose job it is to actually tear this book apart appropriately. But you have this other person in. You bring in Lauren Groff. Now, why do you bring in Groff? It's because no, I think there are there's like a handful of writers right now who signal to kind of like readers, capital mm-hmm. R, that hey, this is the one you should be buying. And Lauren Groff is one of those writers. She's yeah. one of those authors, and she's also one of those type of reviewers. If you've read Lauren um, Groff, if you're reading the New York Times, yeah. you probably have. And if you have read her, then you're going to read what she tells you to buy. Right. So like, re- listen to this paragraph. So this is also from Alex Shepard. The majority of its fiction reviewers are novelists, not professional critics, and they tend to review books with a professional restraint. Partly out of the sympathy that comes from toiling in the same industry, and partly out of the knowledge that the situation could someday be reversed. For all of its pedigree, the review is a safe, staid publication, one that is firmly embedded in the publishing establishment. So, like, the point here is that we are doing a whole lot of things that are meant to move units and not actually talk about what's happening here. It's also worth worth mentioning that, like... That the New York Times that same week published an excerpt of this book. Yeah. No, like (laughs) the point, though, is like I really think there's something instructive here about the hype cycle and how there was just no anticipation somehow that this was going to go sideways. Like they started basically all of the big guns got kicked into gear. The Times ran its excerpt. The Times ran its Groff review. Oprah picked this book. This is the Oprah Book Club book. We'll see. I personally think that might get revived. tweeted that I think this might be reversed but we'll see um but like so much of this stuff happens so many of these promotional cycles happen under the guise of critical evaluation but what is actually just hype 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 move units you know and i just find that especially in the instance where just to like loop back to our very first issue with this like at the expense of what like if resources are finite you know, if advance because because you brought up earlier that advance budgets are finite. Mm-hmm. If you spend seven figures on one book, it means you're not spending on these other things. You're not spending books by creators who might actually be from this community or anything like that. Like the same is true for review attention. Mm-hmm. The same is true for like any of the other ways that this book has garnered attention. You know, blurbers, right? Like you can't blurb everything. And it's like, man, the blurbers didn't read it. The reviewers only did it because they're trying to signal, not because they're trying to evaluate to the extent that in the middle of the review, the reviewers wonders, Lauren Gruff is wondering aloud whether or not she should even be doing this. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just crazy. And all like, of this, all of this really, I mean, talk about like foisting, right? Yeah. Like everybody is saying, well, this is a machine and I'm part of it, but I can't get off. Yeah. And so one of the things that's been really enlightening to see this week particularly is now, so I mentioned earlier that there's a 42-er book yeah, cycle. 40 like, spot a, yeah, 40-spot yeah. book tour, yeah. right? Um, and a lot of these are slowly being canceled, whether they're by the publisher or whether by they're by the bookstore, sometimes within 24 hours of these events taking place. Mm-hmm. And one thing that's doing is when everybody has been abdicating responsibility, the author has abdicated responsibility, the publisher has abdicated responsibility, the reviewers have abdicated yeah. responsibility, the blurbers have abdicated yeah. responsibility. What's left is bookstores mm-hmm. who have to decide whether or not they want to have, you know, like clearly they've been relying on moving a lot of units. Mm-hmm. Of this, the big book, right? Like they've had a lot of buy-in here. And now these bookstores that we've talked about before are are really, really, really delicate. They're in a very delicate ecosystem in, in, this, in this world. They're being asked to either stand for it or, or be complicit. And what that means is that it's there everybody is leaving it up to the bookstores and the booksellers to pay for publisher mistakes yep. in the reader's eyes and the yep. consumer's eyes. Like I think that it's not very far off where um Cummings or Flatiron will make some sort of statement about how they're disappointed that these events are being canceled and that you know that they were that they were hoping that we could have more conversations about this. Well, let's, so let's go back to their statement. For a second, because what they say here, I think, tracks with what you're saying, which is that, um, like, so let's get back to that key sentence. When discussing American Dirt, we ultimately go back to the novel's intention, which you and I talked about, Mm -hmm. and the way it affects us as readers, which I think low-key is, like, the most offensive part of this whole review, which is basically saying we liked it. Our response to this book was positive, and that's why we're going to continue doing this. Forget what any of you guys think. Forget what... How this you don't is, matter. Forget how a book like this is being responded to by people who actually have a stake in the subject matter or anything like that. Like, it affected us in a way that we felt was meaningful. You know, and so we loop back now to that idea in the Seagal uh, review about, like, not asking that much of you, making sure you're comfortable making sure that, you know, it's congratulating you for caring, right? Look how empathetic you are reading a book about the border crisis. You're such a good liberal for doing that. Like You're such a humanitarian. You're such a, you are so good for reading this book. You shouldn't have to do anything else. You can just turn off your TV. You don't even need to know um, what abuela but like means. The, <laughs> the po- but, like, <laughs> it, that is the ethos here. If you're saying what matters to us is how it affected us, yeah, you're saying to hell with your responses, to hell with what anyone else thinks, and also... If we like it, it's fine. And I just think that even on whatever terms they want to frame, this is a – it's just – I don't know. Like it just feels like a lot of mistakes. And I'm mostly like – I think they would have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for the for The, the buy-in. Well, the, I, oh, <laughs> for I... me, I really think that you give the game away with the barbed wire table decorations at the book launch party. Like you can kind of claim – 
whatever it is up until then. I think they would have gotten away with it if they wouldn't have paid a million dollars for it. Yeah. Because at that point, you know, you're kind of got you've got the sunk cost fallacy and you're throwing, you know, good money in after bad. Okay, but you want to know the bleak thing? Hmm. Why do you pay a million dollars for a book? Why? Because someone else was about to pay nine hundred thousand. Right? Right? So let's You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying though? Like it's because there were bidders. Because someone else was gonna publish this book. Like it it's because there was more than one suitor. Like So let's let's then let's then answer the question, which because I think we've we've touched on how everybody is is foisting responsibility off on a different party. Maybe not very aggressively, but definitely in in subtext, right? Um so I guess the question is, who here is really to blame? Yeah. And I I kind of want to run through the parties here because I think it's really important to end on. I think it's obvious, but yeah. it's but it's also really, really important for this industry as a whole to really reckon with this. Yeah. So the author did a bad thing in writing this book, seven, spending seven years writing this book. I mean, there's even... A note is it in the afterward where she says she wishes she had been a little bit browner yeah, to write get, this book. It, it's like I here. wish Hold someone on. who was a little bit browner could have written this book instead of me. But I'm going to be a bridge. Keep talking. I'm going to find. So the exact I'm quote I'm going to do it anyway. So I, I think you know ultimately this this author had been published before. This author was part of the machine. Clearly, like already had an agent had talked to her agent about this, all that sort of thing. Um, ultimately. You know, I I'm in I'm in a lot of agent groups. Right. And we all talk about how we're always turning down these super fucking racist books. Right. Yeah. And there is and that ultimately is it's it's a political act and it's an act that I at least I am very aware is not necessarily a smart financial move. Mm hmm. Right. Because a lot of a lot of these types of books sell super well. Mm -hmm. And so if you're turning down a book whose whose execution and viewpoint is is fundamentally flawed and is racist and you're saying no to that, you're taking on that kind of potential financial burden in stopping it where it starts. Yeah. So it's the author. It's the the agent. It's the editor who's worth mentioning also acquired the help back in the day, which was also very problematic. It is the publishing company first for authorizing all of that money that then wasn't able to go to authentic voices. It is the publisher for not hiring anybody in the fucking production process who spoke Spanish (laughs) (laughs) or had ever been to Mexico. Um, It is the publisher's fault also for overspending on marketing and production. It's the New York Times fault for not engaging critically with what the work is and being complicit in this hype scheme. Well, one of the so it's so interesting with the Times too cuz like one of the reviewers really did. Sure. And the other one did not. But like, like it's just many weird. Yeah. of the like, things and the thing yeah. but the, here's the thing is the New York Times also published this week 
a breakdown of like this controversy and totally erased abdicated their, their abdicated their own role, their own role <laughs> yeah. in it. I love that when it's, the Times does that. They have that happen a lot where it's like they're so influential that and then, they actually have a way of affecting the stories they then They're not like about. we yeah. published two reviews yeah. and then an excerpt yeah. and, and drew a bunch of attention to this. Who can you say know, how this happened? It's Oprah's yeah. fault. <laughs> Oprah and Janine Cummings are going to the border to do a show. That's a thing that's happening. Jesus. That's a thing that Oprah thought was a good idea. Well, so actually, hold on. I want to read. So we've mentioned her once. Valeria Lucelli, who is a, you know, Mexican. Incredible, right? Yeah, she's. I can't say enough times on this show specifically to go read Lost Children Archive. It's a wonderful book. But um, she had a tweet on the 22nd where she says the following. <clears throat> I got a call from Oprah's producers last week asking me to recommend Latina writers for the show, which I did. But then they asked me if I could give them the contact of any illegal people, in quotes, that I've worked with so they could talk to them. The conversation ended there. So <sighs> you've got, yeah, they're doing like a some sort of special from the board. They want to talk to what they themselves are calling illegal people. And again, this is not a politics podcast, but people aren't illegal. We're not fucking calling people illegal on this show or really, frankly, anywhere. And if you are, you're telling on yourself. Um, and... It's just like, I think it's fair to wonder how much legwork went into being sensitive on this stuff. Like, I just, every single piece of information we find out from that to the to the table decorations to the, to the author in her own afterward saying, and I quote, I wish someone slightly browner than me would write it. Um, like, Everybody I don't have to, goes to jail. You can trust your eyes. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to take people... At their shallow word when every single other action and, you know, display says otherwise. You know what I mean? Like, you can treat it on the evidence. And I think we have evidence here to just suggest that, like, this was kind of a misguided project and a harmful one and sort of indicative of a lot of the bigger problems in publishing. Yeah. Every, I mean, when it comes to fault... Yeah. It's really easy to look past this specific instance and it's really easy to go, well, publishing yeah. doesn't hire minorities or and that it's that's a huge part of it. But I think overall, at its core, a lot of the reasons why there aren't people of color in publishing, a lot of the reasons why outlets are pushing books like this, a lot of the reasons why publishers are spending money on books like this is because fundamentally People working in this business, whether they're writers, whether they're editors, whether they're agents, very, very few of them are consciously engaging and consistently engaging with what it means to be white and and doing the work to be anti-racist. Yeah. And fundamentally, I think more than anything, this book just is is the example I think of of the last decade yeah. of really what publishing is like. Publishing has just told you who it is, yeah, and you should believe that. Well, it just needs, yeah, and like that's like why you know we said before that like the problem, like we're past the point of needing to win the argument, right? Because the argument's been won. It's just a matter of it's very clear that no one who has lost the argument is in interest in abdicating their position. You know what I mean? Like this is not a gotcha moment. This is a, what are we going to do about this sort of thing? You know? So I don't know. So don't read American dirt, (laughs) um, provide support to the bookstores that are canceling these events. 
request that Flatiron and Macmillan and the other big five publishers are looking and aggressively acquiring authors of color, but more importantly, make sure that they're hiring people of color and that we are paying them fair wages and so they are staying in their jobs and we are supporting them and we're not driving them out. Also, there's a lot of really good books that came out in the past couple of years about what it means to do the work, like anti-racist work. Um, And you should read them and you should also read um, uh, Latinx authors and definitely, definitely, definitely don't read American Dirt. Don't check it out from the <laughs> library. Don't do anything. Just go read Lost Children Archive. That's what yes. a better book. Yes, go read Lost Children Archive. I wish this whole episode had just been about that book, but unfortunately, there's nothing wrong with it because it's great. Um, so thank you again so much for joining us on this episode of Print Run. Remember, we have that new Ko-Fi thing and join our forum. Join the forum. See you on the forum. Mm-hmm. Like it's 1998. <laughs> Bye.